All right, Habakkuk chapter number 1 begins this way. says, The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there, there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slack, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth pass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Behold ye among the heathen in regard, and wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses also are swifter than the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves and their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind. And they shall gather the captivity as the sand. They shall scoff at the kings, and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power unto his God. Art, not, art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? We shall not die. O Lord, Thou hast ordained them for judgment, and, O mighty God, Thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest Thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest Thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? And makest men as the fishes of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with the angle. They catch them in their net and gather them in their drag. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice under their net and burn incense under their drag, because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower, and will watch to see what he will say unto me, and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Yea, also, because he transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire as hell, and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth unto him all people. Shall not all these take up a parable against him, and a taunting proverb against him, and say, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his! How long? And to him that ladeth himself with thick clay." Shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee, and awake that shall vex thee, and thou shalt be for booties unto them? Because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee. Because of men's blood, and for the violence of the land, of the city, and of all that dwell therein. Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil." Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people, and hast sinned against thy soul. For the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood, and establisheth a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire, and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity? For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea." Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink thou also, and let thy foreskin be uncovered. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. For the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee, and the spoil of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood. And for the violence of the land of the city and of, the, of all that dwell therein. 
What profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it? The molten image and a teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols. Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake, to the dumb stone, Arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. A prayer of Habakkuk upon Shigianah. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise, and His brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of His hand, and there was the hiding of His power. Before Him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at His feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations. And the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea that thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? The bow was made quite naked, according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy words say law. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and as the shining of thy glittering spear. Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation of the neck, Selah. Thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses, through the, great, through the heap of great waters. When I heard, my belly trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olives shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He will make my feet like hinds' feet. He will make me to walk upon mine high places, to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. Now, if we were to notice one verse in the entirety of that little book this evening, it would only be the very first that we read. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. You know, that's all God has to say. Thank you, Fred. That's all God has to say about the identity of this man by the name of Habakkuk. There's not much that we really know about him, and we'll say a word as we move through our notes. But let me remind you this evening, as we look at this introductory material... But there's a handful of things when you study the Bible that you ought to always seek to understand first. We put them in our notes under headings. For instance, one of the first things you ought to try to find out is the author of the book. Who penned the book down? Now, you and I understand, and the Bible teaches clearly that the Holy Ghost is the author of every portion of the Word of God. But uh, God used human penmen to pin down the Word of God. And God did not superimpose Himself upon the personalities of those individuals, but rather the Bible tells us, here's the Bible language, that God breathed into them the Word of God. That with His Holy Spirit, He inspired the things that were said, so that at no point was their will superseding His. But He did not eradicate their will and personality in the penning of the Word of God. You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean there was a man by the name of Habakkuk, and Habakkuk took that pen in hand, and God guided that pen. But it was still Habakkuk that was pinning out those words. 
And God did not somehow turn him into some kind of revelatory zombie that had no will or no personality. God did not work outside of his mind or his personality. God didn't put him in a trance and just move the pen. But rather, God moved on the heart of Habakkuk in such a way that we have exactly God's words, not Habakkuk's. But yet, who Habakkuk is informs us as to some of the understanding of God's words that he gave. So the author is important to know and to understand. The second thing you ought to try to understand is the occasion. Uh, We could use this word, the date of the penning of that book. Uh, Until you understand the Word of God in its context, you don't understand the Word of God. And I don't mean that in an ugly way. I don't mean it in a rude way. But I mean until you understand what was going on around the penning of these words... Until you understand who it was written to, what it was written about, why it was written, you don't really understand the Word of God. You may take things out of the Word of God and make application in your life, but the richest application of the Word of God always grows out of the context of the passage. In other words, I've taught it this way before. You ought to find out what God's saying to the individuals He wrote that to, and then ask yourself, how then does that apply to my life? So the occasion <coughs> excuse me, of the book is important to understand. Then you need to know who the audience is. Who was the intended audience? <coughs> excuse me, I may do a little more coughing tonight as well as we go along, so I, I trust you'll be patient with me. I'm a dispensationalist. Now, what I mean by that is this. I've been defining dispensationalism this way to our young adult Sunday school class. Dispensationalism means to observe and respect the distinctions that God makes. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, we recognize that there were certain things God expected out of Adam, for instance. After Adam sinned in the garden and man fell, and you entered what we call the dispensation of conscience, where God wrote His law on the conscience of men's minds and hearts and sought to restrain human iniquity, through that means there were certain other things that God expected out of mankind. Prior to Adam's sin in the garden, the idea of giving a sacrifice, to our understanding, uh, was not expected of Him. But after his sin in the garden, God sets forth the pattern by the slaying of those animals and the robing of Adam and Eve in those animal skins that only by the shedding of blood can there be the remission of sins. We could go on through the Word of God. We could talk about Abraham, the age of promise, uh, how that God expected Abraham to live and have faith in that promise that was given to him. That expectation, at least not <coughs> excuse me, to the same degree that it was with Abraham, was not expected of men prior to Abraham. We could go further to Mount Sinai when the law was given. Uh, prior to Sinai, there were certain things that, though they were still right and wrong, because God had not disclosed them to mankind as such, mankind wasn't expected to live in light of those things. So God makes distinctions. We could talk about people groups. The New Testament tells us there are three distinct people groups in the world. Jews, Gentiles, and the church of the living God. Meaning unregenerate Jews, unregenerate Gentiles, and the Gentiles, anybody that's not a Jew. And then saved folks, the church of the living God. If you try to treat unregenerate Jews like the church, you're going to get all mixed up in your theology. By the way, let me say this. If you try to treat the saved church of the living God like unregenerate Israel, you're going to get all mixed up in your theology. So dispensationalism is observing and respecting those distinctions that God makes. And part of that process is recognizing, first off, who the audience is. As a dispensationalism, I I, I study the Bible with this truism in mind, that all the Bible is written for me, but not all the Bible is written to me. There are certain things God wrote to the Jews in the Old Testament. It's not written to me. Now, it is still written for me. I can read it. I can learn about who God is. I can learn about what righteousness is. But my interpretation of those things always has to to bear under to the acknowledgement that I'm not a Jew living in the Old Testament. I'm a member of the church of the living of God, living in this dispensation of grace after Calvary. So, understanding who the audience is is important. Then I would say, uh, we have the, the author, the occasion, the audience. We need to know what the context is. In other words, what is, uh, what is taking place around the giving of this? Not just when does it happen in history, but what events were transpiring that precipitated this, this prophecy being given? What prompted it? Why is God speaking? Why is He speaking at this point? And what is He speaking about? And then finally, of course, the content of the book. You know, mankind does everything backwards. And usually what we want to do is we want to jump to the content. We want to say, well, what does all this mean? And then we get frustrated and we close our Bible and say, well, nobody can understand it. You think God would have gone to all this trouble to give us a Bible if He didn't want us to know it and read it and learn it and believe it and understand it? 
No, God gives us these things because He wants us to understand His Word. So, as we move through this introduction material, that's going to be our heart, is to understand these basic fundamental things before we move into the text, the Word of God next week, to establish these things. That's why we printed it out, so that you can take your time later reading and observing and examining these things. So, in your notes before you, they begin this way. They begin with a definition. And it's a word that unless you took theology courses, you're probably not familiar with. It's the word theodicy. Now, theodicy means this, a vindication of the divine attributes of God, particularly His holiness and justice, in establishing or allowing the existence of physical or moral evil. Here's a little bit simpler definition, in case that was a little wordy for you. The attempt to understand the nature and actions of God in the face of evil and suffering. Let me, let me pose a question to you, and it is rhetorical. I'm not asking you to answer it. But this question sums up what the study of theodicy is. If there is a God, why do people suffer? You'll hear this question if you ever uh, listen to an atheist speak or watch a debate between uh, somebody that believes in God and somebody that's an atheist. It almost always centers around the question, if there is a God, why do the evil or why is there suffering? Why is there evil and suffering and wickedness in the world? Well, did you know that Habakkuk had that very same question? And the study of the book of Habakkuk yields to us maybe not every answer that we would want to satisfy our personal curiosity, but it does give us a divine answer that ought to sustain the people of God in trusting God in wicked days. Can I tell you this? There is no answer to unbelief. Now, there's a difference between doubting and unbelief. Unbelief is willful. It is to reject believing in God. It is to determine that you do not want what God is and what God says, and you are unwilling to believe. Now, as believers, it's a sin to live in unbelief. But you know that doubting is a part of the human condition. Habakkuk had doubts about what he was looking at and what he was seeing and how that all reconciles with who God is. To the unbeliever, the one in willful unbelief, i got news for you. There ain't no answer you can give. The Bible teaches us in the book of Romans that, listen, mankind can behold God's creation and see enough to understand there's a God and He's powerful and He's and He's He's omnipotent and, and He is immutable and He is invincible and He is eternal. But the unbeliever, the willful unbeliever, rejects all those things, instead believes in a fairy tale called evolution because they are unwilling to believe. There's no answer to unbelief. But to those that are doubting, to those that are struggling... God has an answer, and we find it in the book of Habakkuk. The subject matter of the book of Habakkuk is theodicy. How can Jehovah, he who is just, allow suffering to continue to afflict his righteous people? You know, theological statements often come all too easy and have too little basis in the real struggles of life. Habakkuk knew the traditional theology of the Hebrew fathers. He could easily take the place of one of Job's friends and describe how theology said the world was supposed to be and how God was supposed to react in holy justice to right the world's wrongs. But there was one problem. God was as silent with Habakkuk as He had been with Job. How did one defend the justice and righteousness of God in a world where God no longer chose to speak or reveal Himself or His ways? In view of the empirical situation of need, Habakkuk's understanding of God lost its self-evident quality. You say, what, what does that mean, preacher? Well, people say, well, it's obvious that there is a God. Well, to Habakkuk, though he believed firmly there was a God, he was struggling reconciling that truth and reality. It had lost its self-evident quality. The idea of God can become totally clear again only when the reality of the experienced world becomes totally clear. Habakkuk's willingness to question and therefore to know the God of the universe rather than settle for knowing the God of popular theology allowed him to see the reality of the world's situation. Habakkuk learned and sought to teach us that faith and fact are not always compatible in the world of sense and sight. But that is not the whole world. There is a world of justice that only God fully comprehends. And his people must accept by faith what they cannot confirm in fact. In other words, we're going to find out, I'd say it this way, that when all you see is part of the picture, sometimes God seems unfair. When all you see is part of the picture, sometimes God seems unjust. But can I just let you in on this? Ain't none of us ever seen all of the whole picture. 
Habakkuk learns that there's a part of God's justice that he has not viewed, he has not witnessed. And only by faith can he continue in serving the Lord in genuineness and sincerity of heart. Concerning the author of Habakkuk, we know little. So much were the old Jewish rabbis impressed by the doubt and uncertainty that enveloped Habakkuk's identity. So unwilling were they to rest content with the obscurity in which Habakkuk himself was perfectly satisfied to remain, that they framed all manner of legends about him. They declared that his mother, for instance, was the Shunammite woman who built a little chamber in the wall of her house for Elisha, the man of God. That thus he was himself the lad to whom death came so suddenly in the harvest field as he played among the reapers, but whom Elisha restored to life and gave back to his mother. And that in after years, when the Holy Land was overrun and conquered by the Chaldeans, he fled to a place of hiding in Arabia and returned again when the foreigner had gone to live for a long period in peace and to die at last in his own home. It's all a tissue of fables originating in man's unwillingness to be contented with the silence of Scripture. You know the problem with that, and if you study Habakkuk, you'll find some guys will say that. Well, he was that little Shunammite. The only problem is that puts him about two, three hundred years too early. Uh, it does not reconcile with the things that Habakkuk says, and nowhere does the Word of God tell us he was that Shunammite. In other words, it's saying this in our notes, that uh, people are so troubled by the fact that Habakkuk didn't say nothing about who he was, that they craft all sorts of fantasies about who he is. You say, preacher, who do you believe he is? I'll tell you exactly who he is. You ready? He was Habakkuk. He was the prophet of God. He was given a burden of God. Now you say, preacher, that's cheating. Well, not to Habakkuk. That was good enough for him. He was satisfied with that. As we will later show, it is likely that Habakkuk was a contemporary of Nahum, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah. And lived during the reigns of Manasseh, Josiah, and Jehoiakim. His name means to embrace or to wrestle. And in this book, he does both. He wrestles with God concerning the problem of how a holy God could use a wicked nation like Babylon to chasten the people of Judah. And then by faith he embraces God and clings to his promises. Habakkuk also wrestles with the spiritual decline of the nation and why God wasn't doing something about it. I don't like to quote Martin Luther, but I'm going to do it anyway here because I think it's a good statement. Martin Luther said that Habakkuk embraces his people and takes them to his arms. That he comforts them and lifts them up as one embraces a weeping child to quiet it with the assurance that if God will, all shall be right ere long. We know nothing of the prophet apart from this book. As he writes the book, he does not write about himself. He writes about his concern for his people and his country. His heart is broken and his heart is deeply stirred because of, pre- uh, because of present existing conditions in the land. He embraced God in prayer when his soul was perplexed and when he could not understand the ways of God in a world of war and sin. He embraced God in prayer when his soul was perplexed and when he sought for the solving of his problems. His soul went out to God with songs of victory as he anticipated the overthrow of all enemies of God. We learn from his prophecy too what his calling and occupation were. Or maybe I should say this, what possibly his calling and occupation were. You may have noticed it as we read through the book of Habakkuk. The closing chapter of his book contains a magnificent ode or hymn in praise of God. A hymn to which he has appended the words to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. Meaning thereby, no doubt, let this ode be sung in the temple service to the sound of the harps, vials, psalteries, which I am myself accustomed to employ when I minister in God's sanctuary. And so it has been reasonably inferred that Habakkuk was an accomplished musician, as well as a poet of the highest order, that he belonged to those bands of Levites who were set apart to sing and play before the Lord, that perhaps he was even a choir master in the holy house on Zion, one whose duty and privilege it was to arrange appropriate harmonies for the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs which were sung there, and to see that they were rendered well and fitly. In other words, here's what we know about him. We know his name was Habakkuk. We can tell from the context and content of his book that he probably ministered sometime between the reign of the evil king Manasseh and then the evil king Jehoiakim. And, of course, the good king Josiah was in between those two men. And we know that it's likely that he was a Levite because it's hard to imagine that he would have said uh, at the end of the third chapter to the chief singers upon my stringed instruments if he didn't expect there were some chief singers there who knew about his stringed instruments and who would take it and sing it. So very likely, he was involved in the music ministry there in temple worship. Now, what about the occasion, the date? And you're going to have to listen carefully to this. I want to be thorough 
in how we examine this because there's disagreement about exactly when the Habakkuk was penned. And I'll admit to you, we're probably not going to find a, a thorough answer or a concrete answer, but we can get in the ballpark, and that's what we need to do tonight. Most commentators follow two theories concerning the date of Habakkuk's prophecy. The first assigns our prophet to the last years of the reign of Messiah. Or not Messiah, Manasseh. I'm going to have to apologize to Jesus when I get to heaven for saying that. In the reign of Manasseh. Immediately succeeding Nahum. A theory which is supported by the position of the book in the Hebrew Bible. That's where it sits in the Hebrew canon. The general iniquity of which Habakkuk complains may certainly be ascribed to that period in Jewish history. According to 2 Kings 21 and 2 Chronicles 33, that evil king not only reinstituted the loathsome Canaanite worship practices of Ashtoreth and Baal, which Hezekiah's father had done away with, but also introduced a state astrological cult. He built pagan altars in the outer courts and priest courts and placed an Ashtoreth idol within the temple itself. He also indulged in sorcery, divination, and witchcraft, as well as the abominable rites of infant sacrifice. Can I just pause there and say, it sounds a lot like the 6 o'clock news, don't it? That the Chaldeans had not yet invaded the land, and that their appearance was not expected, may be seen in Habakkuk 1.5. It says, I will work a work in your days, which we, you will not believe, though it be told you. The words, in your days, imply that he is speaking to adults many of whom would survive the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, and who, if he prophesied about the close of the reign of Manasseh, would be about 60 years old at the time of the Chaldean attack. The time must fit when the Lord's answer would utterly amaze the prophet. That's important to, to note down. Some people put his prophecy really, really late, and mostly it's Bible deniers or deniers of the miraculous because they say, well, how could Habakkuk have known how bad the Chaldeans were going to be if he didn't live when the Chaldeans were being bad? Well, that's real simple because it's not really Habakkuk that, that authored this. It's the Holy Ghost that did. These are the same people that would say, well, we know that Jonah's not real because a whale couldn't have swallowed a man and then spat him up on uh, the earth three days later. Well, if you're going to say that, just go ahead and throw your Bible away. If you're going to try to rip everything miraculous about it, you're not a Bible believer. Amen? You want your Bible to fit within the realm of, of what your logic and observation can stand and not what God's Word says. Uh, so some people would say it had to be later. But the words in your days imply that he is speaking to adults. And, and the fact that he says that it would utterly amaze the prophet implies that it was unusual. wasn't something that they would have expected. Now, this would have been a time possibly prior to the fall of Nineveh in 612 B.C. And we'll say why that is here in a little while. But it's definitely prior to the defeat of the Egyptians by Babylon at the Battle of Carchemish in 605 B.C. By that time, discerning people had seen the handwriting on the wall concerning Babylon. And it would have been nothing incredible that destruction should menace Judea from the Babylonians. Habakkuk 1, 5 through 6 implies that the decisive moment had not yet arrived. A date for Habakkuk during Manasseh's reign, which is supported by Jewish tradition, would be particularly attractive if it could be demonstrated that both Zephaniah and Jeremiah, who we know prophesied later, that they knew and utilized Habakkuk's prophecy. And you can take time to look those up, but all those are cross-references that shows it seems as though Zephaniah and Jeremiah are echoing the words of Habakkuk. Now one could say, well, it's the same Holy Spirit. And that's true. It's very possible. But that is one more of a little bit of substantiating evidence that Habakkuk probably prophesied before Jeremiah and Zephaniah, though he was contemporary with them. Habakkuk, on the other hand, employs the language of Isaiah 11.9 in Habakkuk 2.14. These arguments, by the way, would apply with equal force to the earlier part of Josiah's reign. So that's, that's after Manasseh, but it's before Jehoiakim. It's before the, the Babylonians defeated the Egyptians at the Battle of Carchemish. Uh, so you, you could really, there's some room there that you could move within. This would place our prophet between B.C. 650 and B.C. 635, according to the usual reckoning, or about B.C. 626 in revised chronology. And this seems the most probable opinion. The other theory makes Habakkuk a contemporary of Judah's king Jehoiakim. That would have been down in 609 to 598 B.C., whose godless disposition occasioned prophetic utterances of condemnation together with the threat of a Babylonian invasion in Jeremiah 25. This opinion is based upon the idea that his account of the violence and oppression committed by the Chaldeans could only have been written by one familiar with their proceedings, and that would, it would have been injudicious 
prematurely to fill the minds of the people with fear of these foreign invaders. And I, and I think that's weak tea. I think that's weak sauce. I, I, I think that is, that is really rooted more in denying the miraculous, inspired nature of the Word of God than it is in, in you know, being kind to the Babylonians. I have a hard time believing that that's rooted in politeness towards the Babylonians. You know, uh, Habakkuk has received an earlier date from some who have placed him in the closing years of Manasseh, a later date from some others who assign his preaching and activity to the days of Jehoiakim when, Je- uh, when Judea was uh, tottering to its fall, so making him one of the prophets of the captivity. But we may follow those who steer a middle course and fix upon the reign of Josiah as the most probable period of Habakkuk's life and work. And I left that in there because I agree with that. I think probably during the time of Josiah it is the most likely. And you know, it's even possible that some of the reforms that Josiah made, you remember King Josiah was a godly young man. They found the book of the law during his reign and he begins a sweeping, we're tempted to call it a revival, but it really wasn't. It was a reformation of the, of the cultural and spiritual life of Israel. The only problem is it didn't outlive Josiah. That's how we know it's not revival. If it had been genuine and sincere, then the people of Israel would have took it to heart and they would have continued on, but they didn't. But you know, it's possible that whenever Habakkuk pinned these down, that's what prompted some of that, uh, even in the superficial response of the people of Israel. But we really don't know. We know it falls somewhere in that range. We know it had to be before uh, 605 at the Battle of Carchemish. I'm not going to get into it. Time won't allow me. But you really cannot overstate the importance of that battle in the ancient world. Uh, Egypt was ascendant. They were the big dog on the block. Nobody was whooping Egypt until Babylon did. Until the Chaldeans utterly decimated them at Carchemish. By the way, one of the other things that happens there is Josiah dies there. So not only in the broader geopolitical scheme of the world, but in the life of Israel, it is a pivotal moment. And anybody after that day, it wouldn't have been hard to imagine the Babylonians were in charge now. It would not, to use the Bible language, have utterly amazed anyone that the Babylonians would be the ones that are in charge now. And so I think there's a good chance it it happened prior to that, and maybe even prior to 612 when Nineveh fell. Uh, Nineveh falling was the final death knell in the Assyrian Empire. After 612, you didn't know it was going to be Babylon, but you sure enough knew it wasn't going to be Assyria. They had been utterly crippled, and they were no longer, they were just in the sort of waning years of their empire. So probably even before that, there is a possibility, and that would put it either in the latter years of Manasseh or in the early years of Josiah, or sometime in Josiah's reign. Now, what about the audience? Well, whichever proposed pre-exilic date for the book is settled upon, Habakkuk obviously wrote for the people of Judah at large, as well as the faithful remnant. He wanted them to understand both the coming judgment for the present sin and apostasy of their society and God's ultimate goal for his covenant nation. Both groups needed to be challenged. Would they remain faithful to God in the face of severe danger? Did they understand that this danger was imminently real? Had the lesson of the fall of the northern kingdom in the previous century been forgotten? When the enemy did arrive, would the people of Judah be cast on a sea of doubt as Habakkuk initially was? Now, what about the context? What's going on in the world at this time? Well, Habakkuk's ministry probably revolved around the two most significant events of the last quarter of the 7th century B.C. in the history of the ancient Near East. The fall of Nineveh to a coalition of Medes and Babylonians, (coughs) excuse me, and the establishment of Babylon as the greatest power of the region. In 627 B.C., the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal died. And Josiah began to make major policy changes as he began to seek the God of the David his father. Josiah's reforms had at least three components. Number one, a consistent purge of foreign cults and practices. Number two, destruction of the high places in the territory of the former northern kingdom as well as in the south. And three, centralization of public worship in Jerusalem. Apparently, Josiah renounced the gods of Assyria and rejected completely the policies of his grandfather, Manasseh. By removing the elements of the Assyrian state religion from the sanctuary, Josiah, in effect, revoked his vassal relationship with Assyria. Religious reform became, at the same time, political reform. In 621 B.C., while repairing the temple, workers found the book of the law most often identified as all or part of the book of Deuteronomy. This gave the added power to the reform movement, providing clear evidence from ancient sources that such reform pleased God. Josiah called the people to the temple for a ceremony of covenant renewal, where they made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to be obedient to His commands. 
Thus Josiah carried out the most thoroughgoing reform in Judah's history. He transformed the little state of Judah into the largest nation in western Palestine in the latter part of the 7th century B.C. There's one problem. The leaders of the people ignored the spiritual reasons for their material prosperity. Sounds a lot like America, doesn't it? And thought God's favor could be enjoyed without interruption. While Judah was asserting its independence and purifying its religion, Babylon and Assyria were changing positions of authority in world politics. After the death of Ashurbanipal, Assyria's fortunes immediately plummeted. Nabopolassar of Babylon sought and gained his independence. For the next ten years, Babylon and Assyria attacked and counterattacked each other over Assyria's holdings in southern Mesopotamia. Eventually, Nabopolassar succeeded in taking Nippur and in freeing all of Sumer and Akkad. In this same year, a coalition of Medes and Babylonians systematically began to reduce the Assyrian Empire by destroying its major strongholds. By 614 B.C., Xerxes, the Mede, had defeated Asher, one of Assyria's capitals. Nineveh, the empire's main city, did not collapse until 612. Finally, in 610 to 609 B.C., the final bastion of Assyrian resistance crumbled as the Medes and Babylonians captured Haran. Using the Tigris River as the boundary for the division of Assyrian holdings, the Medes took everything to the north and east, while the Babylonians received the territory to the west and south. The marriage of the daughter of Xerxes to Nebuchadnezzar, the son of Nabopolassar, completed the political alliance in typical Near Eastern style. Egypt could not ignore the realignment of international power. In 609 B.C., Pharaoh Necho II went to Assyria's aid at Carchemish, where Asher Ubalat made one last effort to recapture Haran from the Babylonians. Egypt hoped to halt the Babylonian march westward and wrench control of Syria-Palestine for itself. This placed Josiah in a difficult position. He apparently saw Egypt and Assyria as a strong threat to his religious reforms and desired for political independence. Josiah's attempts have been described as suicidal and foolish, and they resulted in his death on the battlefield at Megiddo. His army took his body back to Jerusalem in his chariot amid great lamentation. The people of the land selected Josiah's son Jehoahaz as king rather than Eliakim the firstborn. Evidently they thought Jehoahaz would continue the struggle for independence while Eliakim would submit to Egypt. Pharaoh Necho probably thought the same thing since after only a three-month reign, Jehoahaz was summoned to Necho's headquarters at Riblah in central Syria. From there, the Egyptians imprisoned Jehoahaz and took him to Egypt, where he lived until his death. Necho installed Eliakim on the throne of Judah, where he served as an Egyptian vassal. Necho arranged his name, uh, changed his name to Jehoiakim, another way of exercising control and establishing that Jehoiakim served the Pharaoh. Jehoiakim was certainly not a worthy successor to his father. The Bible describes him as a tyrant who shed innocent blood in Jerusalem. The prophet Jeremiah described him as an unjust and brutal despot whose chief interest was in the sumptuous enlargement of his palace. For some years after the Battle of Megiddo, Necho maintained control over Syria and Palestine, primarily because the Babylonians were busy strengthening their positions in the Armenian mountains. In 605 B.C., Nabopolassar entrusted his army to his son Nebuchadnezzar, who attacked and defeated the Egyptian army at Carchemish. Uh, we have this in the Word of God in 2 Kings 24-7. says, And the king of Egypt came not again any more out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken from the river of Egypt under the river Euphrates all that pertained to the king of Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar chased the Egyptians across the Euphrates River to Hamath in Syria. The significance of this event must not be underestimated. With the victory, Babylon firmly established itself as the dominant world power. Also, it left all of Syria and Palestine open to Babylon's armies. Tiny Judah had a new overlord. Jehoiakim quickly changed his obedience from Necho to Nabopolassar. An Aramaic letter found at Saqqara in Egypt in 1942 indicates that a neighboring king did not submit so readily. King Adon requested Pharaoh for urgent help for his beleaguered city. He described Nebuchadnezzar's advance as far as Aphek and warned Necho that the Babylonians were on the verge of setting a governor over the land. Nebuchadnezzar might have pushed into Egypt had it not been for the death of his father. Instead, he quickly returned home in 605 to be proclaimed king. Now let me pause there for just a moment. I'm going to pick up, I know we're, we're uh, brief on time. But all this, by the way, is happening at the same time. This is when leading up to Daniel being carried into captivity. I don't know if you remember, if you studied the history of it, but there were three sieges against Jerusalem. 
Uh, there was a siege, and I know I'm going to get my dates wrong, but there was a siege in about 605 B.C., and there was another one in, I believe, about 598 B.C., and then another in 586 B.C. Remember that Jeremiah survived all three of those. He writes Lamentations after the second uh, siege, which was the main one in 598, and he sees that the city is in utter ruins. Uh, Daniel would have probably been taken and his companions into captivity in 605. Nebuchadnezzar did not get to finish that because his father, Nabopolassar, died. Had Nabopolassar not died, Nebuchadnezzar would have probably took everything in 605 B.C. But instead he had to satisfy himself with taking all of the seed royal of Judah with this thought in mind. If I control their kids, I control their, uh, their parents. I control all. I control the whole, the whole kingdom. <coughs> so all of this is happening at the same time. This is all leading up to this. And Habakkuk would have prophesied shortly before this time. This is all coming in the wake of what Habakkuk had had prophesied. In 602 B.C., Jehoiakim rebelled, apparently supporting an Egyptian attempt that led to a defeat of the Babylonian army in 601. Babylon quickly uh, reacted quickly. During the winter of 598 to 597, Babylonian troops, apparently strengthened by contingents from Israel's neighbors, entered Judah and captured Jerusalem on March 16, 597 B.C. In the meantime, Jehoiakim died. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiakim, the new king, captive to Babylon, <coughs> excuse me, and placed another son of Josiah on the throne, naming him Zedekiah. These catastrophic events of the last decades of the 7th century B.C. and the first decade of the 6th century B.C. left many people reeling in disillusion. It was an agitated time characterized by rapid political change, international turmoil, bloody military encounters, and a growing rebellion against the demands of the covenant by the great majority in Judah. Prophetic activity was feverish, not only with the ministries of people like Jeremiah, Nahum, Zephaniah, and Ezekiel, but also with false prophets in abundance. This was the age in which Habakkuk lived and wrote. And it is against this background that we must understand the questions that the puzzled prophet raised. Amidst the troubled politics of the time, Habakkuk wrestled with a twofold problem. Why did God allow the wickedness in his homeland to continue? And even more perplexing, how could God allow his own nation, unrighteous though it was, to be punished by an even more unrighteous nation? The Babylonians were worse than the Jews. Faced with this seemingly insolvable problem, Habakkuk wisely took the matter to God. Other prophets addressed themselves to Israel, Judah, Nineveh, or Edom, whereas Habakkuk addressed himself to God. (coughs) Now, what about the content of this book? Well, the book of Habakkuk is a record of the prophet's conversation with God. Instead of speaking to the people for God, Habakkuk spoke to God for the people. In his dialogue with God, Habakkuk asked God directly how the wicked could go unpunished. God answered, you must wait to see the work I am about to do on the stage of world history. Next, the prophet asked, how could God use an evil instrument like Babylon to punish his own poor people, who were surely more righteous than Babylon? Habakkuk's message is set within a backdrop of real people facing real questions about real human suffering. The prophet's questions prompted God's revelation. The revelation centered in words that have repeatedly transformed the world. The just shall live by their faith. Central to the message of Habakkuk is the theme of faith. In the face of life's inequities and perplexities, will one's faith waver or remain steadfast? Today, as in Habakkuk today, the injustices and immorality of corrupt, secular, and idolatrous societies make it seem as though life is less than fair. And therefore, one could be tempted to wonder whether God really is sufficient for the trials of life. In the fellowship of the Old Testament seers, Habakkuk stands out preeminent as the prophet of faith. More than most, he believed God. His was not always a victorious and jubilant faith, an unclouded assurance. Sometimes it had a sore battle to wage with doubt. Frequently he was cast down. It was an enigma to him, as it had been to many, that the judge of all the earth should act as he did. But it was the very simplicity of his dependence, the very thoroughness of his confidence, which led him to struggle. He could not satisfy himself, as we do, with empty phrases, telling his heart that no doubt the mystery would be solved in good time and that all was for the best. It was just because he had an absolute faith in God's rectitude and mercy. Just because he leaned on him entirely and had an unquestioning trust in his character and ways, it was puzzling to him 
to see the unrighteous prosperous and the good downtrodden. Habakkuk's problem was the difference between the world as he found it and what he believed regarding God. At first, his difficulties arose in the domestic situation in Judah. Violence and corruption were rampant. Since God is just and holy and since He is the ruler of His people, how could He tolerate such behavior? Why did He not intervene so that those who despise the standards of God's covenant would not be able to continue dominating the land? God's answer is that He will intervene. Judgment will come upon the nation because of their wickedness, but it is going to come in an unexpected way. The Babylonians are going to overrun the land. Later on, possibly when Judah was experiencing what it meant to have the Babylonians as their political masters, Habakkuk again comes to the Lord with much the same problem of the success of violence and oppression. But now on an international level, how can God be just and in control of the world and yet the Babylonians, let the Babylonians have a free hand to terrorize and dominate his people? How can he use such a nation as his instrument to punish his own people? Let me pause there and say this. Isn't that what we're all asking? We look around and we say, you know... Why is everything the way it is? Why don't God do something? And we say, well, you know, God is doing something. He's judging America. And then we're afraid to, but here's the next question we ought to ask when we ask that. How could He use those scoundrels that are oppressing us to oppress us? How could He use men more wicked than the people of God? Let let me say this. I know the church has problems. But I'll take the church over the government, over Hollywood, over all of that any day. How can he use these forces of iniquity in society to oppress his own precious people? And in this day that we're living in, his precious bride, how could he allow that? Well, it is to that question that we're all asking, if we're to be honest, it is to that question that Habakkuk speaks. In seeking to understand God with his probing questions, I want you to listen carefully to this. I found this fascinating. Habakkuk became what one commentator calls a revelator with God and shows that co-revelation does not come easily or in a historical vacuum. Now let me clarify. This is not saying that Habakkuk was the source of what was being said, but rather that it was Habakkuk's struggle and crisis of faith that God used to reveal more of himself to humanity, to society. Has it ever dawned on you that it could be the storm you're going through that God's using to show someone else He can calm the storm? That makes you a co-revelator. Not saying it doesn't come from God. Not saying that Habakkuk's not the Word of God or that it's the Word of only Habakkuk. But saying that it was His very crisis that God used to reveal more of Himself. God is the friend of the honest doubter who dares to talk to God rather than about Him prayer that includes an element of questioning God may be a means of increasing one's faith. Expressing doubts and crying out about unfair situations in the universe show one's trust in God and one's confidence that God should and does have an answer to humanity's insoluble problems. Such an experience of doubting is not, however, to be normative. Such doubting and questioning faith is only a step to rejoicing praising faith. It's not a way to avoid personal responsibility and action. Habakkuk neither used his question to shield himself from moral responsibilities, nor shunned God's claims upon his life. He was genuinely perplexed by the unpredictable nature of God's dealings with him. He raised his protests actually because he thought so much of God, and hungered and thirsted to see God's righteousness vindicated as well as his own. God's revelation of himself laid the ghost of the prophet's doubts and gave birth to a finer faith. The redeeming God had used his questions as a means of grace to draw Habakkuk closer to himself. And when the gloom and the perplexity have passed, Habakkuk's eyes are still directed heavenward. His affections are above. Habakkuk's questions speak directly to the great questions of the human heart in our day as well. They boil down to the individual's involvement in history. On the personal level, they express themselves in such questions as these. Who am I? Why am I here? What is the meaning of life? On the historical level, they emerge in this way. What is the meaning of history? What is God's involvement with history? Why is there evil in history? Why doesn't God do something about wickedness? How can I believe in a loving, personal God when He allows bad things to happen to me? Habakkuk raised these questions too. He asks, is God in charge of history? And if He is, why do things happen as they do? In dealing with these questions, He speaks directly to our own times, as directly to our own times as any comparable portion of the Word of God. Present circumstances may cause problems and bewilderment, 
But the way out of the valley of perplexity is a confident trust in the Lord's wisdom and salvation. Faith is never blind acceptance. To have questions and experience doubt is not the same as unbelief. There are many aspects of life, and particularly those connected with how God is working out His purposes in the course of human history, that raise honest questions for which we seek to find an answer. As we follow the course of the prophet's particular difficulties, the invitation to us is not only to bring our questions and doubts before God, but also to come to the same understanding of Him and acceptance of His way of working as Habakkuk exemplifies for us. Evil will be judged when God deems it appropriate. In the meantime, we are to wait expectantly, focusing on what we are sure of about God and looking forward with joyful confidence to His intervention and deliverance. Let me make these closing statements and we'll be done tonight. It wasn't because Habakkuk didn't believe in God that he asked questions. It was because he did believe in God. He, he did not have, can I say it this way, Habakkuk had, had more than a Facebook Christianity. More than a Christianity that could just be summed up in, in floral memes and, and mindless quotations of Scripture taken out of context. He looked around and he saw a world on fire and he thought, God, isn't this your world? Why is this being permitted to happen? There is a difference between unbelief and faith. Unbelief is willful. It is to look at God and say, I know what you said, but I refuse to believe it. But doubt is to look up and say, God, I know what you've said, and I do believe. And it is for that very belief that I'm coming to you with a heart broken because I look around and what I know to be true, because I know who you are, and I know what you've taught, and I know what you've said, and I know what you've done. Because what I know of you to be true is true. I'm struggling in looking at a world that doesn't seem to coincide with it. That was the spirit and attitude of Habakkuk. I'm not being an apologist for unbelief. I don't think Habakkuk was either. You'll either believe God or you won't. And that is a choice of the will more than it is of, of merely the mind or, or observation or empirical evidence. But as we seek and endeavor and as we resolve to believe God, I like to believe and I think the Bible has abundant evidence that God is patient with us in our struggles, in our questions, in our doubts, in our discouragement. I think as we move through the book of Habakkuk, more than learning what Habakkuk was talking about as regards the wickedness of, of Israel and, and the wickedness of the Babylonians, more than that, what we find is we find how to deal with doubt and discouragement. We find out the proper way forward. You know how a lot of people do it? They, they close their eyes. They say, well, whatever. Other people handle it by throwing up their hands and saying, I'm done, and they walk away from God. But Habakkuk's faith was so strong that he grabbed hold of God like Jacob did of old and said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. I will not let go until you give me some kind of peace. If we were to give a basic outline, the book of Habakkuk has three chapters. It has 56 verses, and those verses contain four, 1,475 words. We could, we could define it this way. We could, we could uh, categorize it this way. Chapter 1, we see that faith is puzzled. Chapter 2, we see that faith is patient. In chapter 3, we see that faith is praising. We could say in chapter 1, the believer is tested. In chapter 2, the believer is trusting. In chapter 3, the believer is triumphing. Someone once said it this way, that in these three chapters, in chapter 1, we see the prophet worried with conditions. In chapter 2, we see him watching with confidence. And in chapter 3, we find him worshiping with contentment. Or if we want to do it a little simpler, we could say it this way. In chapter 1, he's sighing. In chapter 2, he's silenced. But in chapter 3, we hear him singing. 